But now we don't have any value. Hey, it's your death sentence for this week. Uh, well, maybe your second one, because uh, Langdon and Eden just put out a, another uh, incredibly good show about some sci-fi book I've never heard of, which is what they do, which is cool of them. Um, but today we have with us returning guest, which very few people can actually say. They've, well, actually, no, that's a lie. Loads of people have been returning guests to the show. But few have been returned on such a large time frame. Like El Nash, who was here with us today, was a very early guest on the show for her book, um, Animals Eat Each Other, which was brilliant. And she's now back because she's got another book out. Well, she's actually had two books out in the in the interim, uh, one being a collection of short stories and the other being Gag Reflex, which we're here to talk about today. Because... Uh, it's even better than animals eat each other, my personal opinion. Maybe other people share that opinion. Um, don't email me about it. I don't care. <laughs> but um, L, hi. How's it going? It's good. How are you? It's good. Um, It's like very rainy. And I'm actually in the same time zone as you now. So. I know. So it, it makes like uh, talking to you look so much easier. Yeah. Uh, no one's like asleep. Uh, yeah, we're talking, and because to, to add a little context here, you live in Glasgow now. I do. Yeah, I just moved here about six months ago, um, and prior to, I had been, was I visiting Colorado or living there? I think I was visiting Colorado, but that's you know, um, I had moved back. Um, I think I think I remember you saying you were in Colorado uh, last time you were on the show. Yeah. Yeah, I think I was temporarily visiting at that time to do my book release for animals because that's I, right, yeah. Yeah, I was living in Arkansas in the south. Um, but right before COVID hit, I actually moved back to Colorado to save up money um, and just like be near my family, my best friend again. And then COVID kind of like threw a wrench in everything that we were trying to do. So. So you know what? Um, may I ask why why Glasgow out of everywhere on earth? So when I came to the UK on my book tour in 2019, I actually was just so I just fell so in love with Scotland. Um, Edinburgh is a little bit pricey and it feels mm. a little bit stodgier. Like the I think just the people there are just a little bit older than my crowd. Um, and I actually visited Glasgow for only like three hours. Like I went to a Waterstones and like gave them some books with my publisher and then they drove me to the Glasgow airport and then I flew back to Heathrow, <laughs> you know, like it was very fast, but I don't know, just something about it. I loved like so much. So, um, I, when I decided that I had wanted to move back to the UK, um, I wasn't sure where I would land, but Glasgow ended up being it. It just felt right. Nice. I, I, I've never been. So, like, I'm sure you know by now it has kind of a reputation in this country for being being a bit rough, uh, being, you know, for, for being like, you know, people chugging a bottle of um, Buckfast and stabbing a paramedic, that kind uh-huh. of that kind of vibe. Yeah. Uh, but what what's it really like? Because I've never been. I've been to Scotland for like 
two days in my life when I was like nine years old. Yeah, it's honestly like, I I understand it has that reputation and I feel like that must be how it was like before, like maybe 20 years ago or something. Because to me, like everyone is so nice. Um, I don't know how to describe it. Like I was telling one of my friends, I gotten off the train and was walking to my daughter's daycare and it was a beautiful sunny day so like when it is sunny here i actually feel really uplifted because generally it is pretty cold and mm, like rainy yeah. um but it was just this beautiful sunny day and the flowers were out and i was taking video of these beautiful like flowers and this old man was walking down the street and was kind of chiding me like he was like he was like you better not be picking those flowers because like they're just so beautiful like he was just kind of like making fun you know like making conversation mm-hmm. And then I, I was walking up the street and I was just like, oh gosh, like people are just so friendly. Like they just start conversations with you. And then this like woman turned the corner and she had this husky and this husky was just smiling so big and happy to see me. And I put my hand out and he licked my hand and she was just like, he's a surly one and just was like smiling. And I said, I was just like, kept walking. I was like, I feel like I live in like Mr. Rogers neighborhood or something. <laughs> Because people think, are just so, like, they smile at you, like, on the street and say hi. And I'm just so not, I'm just really not used to that. So <laughs> the people here are just, like, they're very friendly. And it's been, like, wonderful, honestly. I think Britain gets nicer as you get away from London. London is, like, the epicenter of, like, nastiness and rudeness and anger in this country. And as you get further away, like, if you go right to the tip of Cornwall, everyone's really nice. Uh-huh. If you go right way up in Wales, super nice people. Mm-hmm. Scotland, lovely. Uh, even here where I am in Manchester, where you're about halfway between London and you, people people are like noticeably nicer than Londoners. I, I lived in London for many years, and it's just a, a mean, mean place where it's just totally normal to shout at just random people on the street <laughs> and push people and... Oh really? Just yell at people on the on the subway, and yeah, it, it's kind of like New York. And it's probably not as bad as New York, but um, mm. it's got it's definitely got that big city, everyone hates each other vibe. Yeah, and yeah, just you just got to get as far away from there as you can, and people <laughs> become super nice again. That makes sense. I feel like so I took um, the train with my daughter to go see my family in North Yorkshire, and um, it was like. I feel I did I do feel like when I was going on the train and then coming back we I like got first class tickets but you know I have this young child and she's gonna be a young child like she's four so she's being a toddler and loud and talkative and kind of messy and stuff um and I did feel like the further like south I got first or like the further north I got when I was coming back I could tell when I was entering into Scotland because (laughs) The people just became a lot more accommodating and they didn't mind her. Whereas like on the way down, people were more just like really grumpy about me having a child. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, yeah, that's like North Yorkshire, which is kind of just my doorstep, basically. And people would be, if if you went even further down, you'd be noticeably meaner still. Mm, You you really know about it in London. Yeah, just just avoid London, I think. (laughs) But um, yeah, th- th- that's been a very, a very wholesome and uh, sweet intro to uh, us talking about a book that's, mm-hmm. um, for all its many good faults, is not um, wholesome, uh, particularly. Um, 
Yeah, it it's it it can be pretty rough going. So I, let's just start with like the basics of gag reflex. Um, like when when did you start it, and kind of where did it come from? So. I'm trying to remember when I had like the very first seed of the idea. I think I was talking to B.R. Yeager about um, live journal and we ended up like trying to find our old live journals and look them up. And it was after that, that I was like, um, what happened? I read 1982 Janine by Alistair Gray. And I was really in love with like, his like the concept of this novel and also the way that he had like cast it in time with the title like the title itself was just so magnetic to me and I was like god what if I wrote a book where I like put the year in a title like I kept thinking that and I was like there's nothing more timely for me um more like of the moment than the year 2005 um and the existence of new metal, and, like the fashion, the feeling, the angst of all of it. Um, and so I was like, what if I just like combined these two ideas? And I didn't really start drafting it until sometime during the first year, I think, of COVID, because I I'd gone to clash like with this idea. Like I was like, what if I did this? And they were down for it. Like I was like, I want it to look and feel exactly like a live journal. Like I want this to be the layout. Mm-hmm. And once they gave me the go-ahead that they were into it, um, that's when I really started going gung-ho on the project. So, yeah. And, um, yeah, so, tell, so it's, yeah, like you said, set it's set out as a live journal page. I was mm-hmm. never a live journal guy. I, I kind of skipped live journal and went straight to Facebook. Oh, really? But, um, yeah, I, I don't think I've ever retouched live journal. It's still around, apparently. It is. It's owned by like a Russian company. Um, and I think maybe some people still use it, but it just doesn't have like the same liveliness, I think, as it did in its heyday. I think George R.R. R. Martin still posts on his live journal pretty regularly. Really? He's the only person I know who uses live journal. That's fascinating. It's what he does instead of writing his book. Um, right. But so it, so kind of explain the plot a little bit because. Um, yeah, it's, it's not just a live journal story. There's way more to it than that, right? Yeah, so it follows the, la- the this girl who was in her last semester of high school um, through that last semester and into summer as she wrangles with um, having an eating disorder, debating whether or not to go into recovery, um, how she's interacting with the people in her life and trying to have relationships and find someone who, who sees her value or trying to see her own value. Um, and it kind of goes on, you know, with her trying to figure out like, should I recover? Should I not? How do I do this? You know? Hmm. Yeah. I, I'm, I know of the kind of pro Anna subculture that was, I guess is probably still around somewhere, mm-hmm. but um, from the, from the back, kind of back matter of the book, it, it you, like we're in that scene, I guess, uh, during that time. So this this must have been a tough one to write. Yeah, at times it was. I mean, I had just moved to my hometown into my parents' house, like right before COVID hit, and then inadvertently ended up getting stuck there because of COVID and lockdown. Um, and 
you know, there's nothing more prime for rummaging through your childhood trauma than like living in the house <laughs> of your trauma with the people, you know, who have like greatly contributed to that experience. And so it really almost was like kismet because I would never go through that again. But it really actually was kind of helpful for me to examine like the parts of my life of when I when my eating disorder was like the worst, you know, like in the place where it had developed. Um, I had like all my old journals that I could just go through for hours. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. I can't remember what the question was. I think I just got <laughs> sidetracked thinking about oh, like. No, no, no. Um... <laughs> No, that's, that's that's cool that was like there's like a method acting kind of way to write in this you're like immersing yourself in i, I guess it's not method acting because you're you so you can't really act as you because you yeah. are you yeah but there's definitely like you know it's there's a lot that's like has is fictionalized from my life things that are like the plot's not it doesn't follow my life uh, hmm. per se or anything like that so i think in a way it is because um, it's interesting you say that because it was actually during COVID that I was like, I'm going to figure out how to use method acne techniques to um, to do my writing. And mm -hmm. I would have like really long periods of um, doing these like emotional resonance method acting um, practices um, before like I would sit down to write. So it is kind of like it is in that way a method acting process. Like I'm trying to immerse myself in it and bring mm -hmm. the feelings back up and see like how I can translate them into the story so I, I've been kind of thinking about method acting and writing lately because mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know if you've seen this show it's called Barry it's about a hitman who becomes an actor and it's set in like an acting troupe and there's lots of uh, explorations of method acting and I was kind of thinking about that but how how do you like how do you do method when you're writing um, so from the information I've been able to find about it, a lot of it is just about the ability to like visualize really well. Um, or even like if you've ever done a kind of guided meditation that involves, right, like visualization or taking yourself back to a particular memory or feeling, um, that is a lot of what I do. Like you just kind of sit in the environment and try to bring it forward in your mind with as much detail as you possibly can and do that over and over and over again until you can bring forth the emotion you're trying to bring forth. Mm -hmm. Like there were even activities where I was trying to teach myself how to cry, like, you know, as, as an act, as an actor or whatever like I was like how do they do this like how can someone just cry like on stage or on a screen when they don't feel sad and so I would do these exercises and try to work them through over and over again and one thing I did discover actually was that when you're like method acting like when that person is crying on screen like there is emotional pain that you're actually experiencing it's not like a crocodile tear thing it's actual like emotional like you're bringing up something terrible and sad that you've experienced and it's pushing through your mind and like the actor is you know obviously applying that like symptom right like that that um product to whatever is happening in the scene and i think that's something that you can do with writing um 
which is actually very astute because, you know, as a person who's taught workshops and stuff, I've had students who say like, I don't know how to connect with my character that I'm writing or like how to get the depth into this particular character. And the thing I discovered with like the method is that actually like it's very easy because the feelings that we do have are all, they're almost universal. Like Mm -hmm. everyone feels pain. You just have to take that pain and figure out how to insert it into the place that you need to insert it for this character, right? Like everybody Mm -hmm. cries, everybody's experienced loss. So how can you take your feeling of loss and like translate it into this character, you know? And that's how you can, that's how you, we learn to relate to each other and all that too, so. Well, yeah, I've been thinking about that kind of stuff for years. I, I don't know if maybe some way, someday someone's going to like write down how to how to method act your way into writing. Mm. Like, like, do you find that you're still able to do the like technical aspects of writing, just like word choice, punctuation, just like the if you're putting yourself into a really really deep emotional state, like my. I, I would be very, I'd be worried that I'm like um, using cliches, for example, or using, I, or, or, um, just, or just writing badly in general, because I'd be out of that very like cerebral um, writerly mode that I supposedly need to be in to, to do writing. But do you find you can, you can do it like in a really like intense emotional state? Yeah, I mean... For one thing, like, that's what editing is for. That's what, like, the second draft is for. I always say that, like, the cliches, like, the common phrases or the bad writing that we create are really just, like, your mind making shortcuts, right? Like, it's the scaffolding that you're building of the story. So even if you're in that state and you're trying to bring forth this stuff and you're, you find in the second draft that you've written a cliche, you can always just, like, you just have to look at it and understand and try to tell, like, what is the emotion that you're actually trying to express underneath it, you know, like in your own unique way. Hmm. And I guess if you're writing like a a teenage girl in a live journal, then there's going to be a certain level of cliche and uh, I wouldn't say bad writing because you're not not a bad writer and you don't write Lucy's, uh, you don't write Lucy as a bad writer. But there'd be a certain, a teenager isn't going to write the same way like you and I would today it's gonna be yeah significantly different it would be like a little less mature or like a little underdeveloped for sure hmm. yeah yeah I, I think you kind of you kind of nailed the, the voice in there because it would be very tempting to um yeah when you write an internet novel which I'm, I'm gonna talk about whether this is actually an internet novel in a second <laughs> um when you're writing about someone writing online yeah, there would be a temptation, I think, to uh, put in a load of text speak, put in some like um, uh, intentional mistakes and typos in there, just to make it look like it's a a kid writing on the internet and not editing themselves. Mm. And what I liked is you you didn't do that; you avoided that because that's a uh, yeah, it's kind of it's it's corny at the end mm-hmm. of the day. It's it's just a like a corny grown-up millennials way of thinking how a, a child would um would write mm-hmm. so it's yeah it's good to you good to you ignore that but um speaking of the internet <clears throat> so there's been like a lot of internet novels lately like I, I can literally see 
uh, Lauren Ola's fake accounts on my bookshelf right now. Mm-hmm. I can, can reach out and touch it with my foot. Um, and there's stuff like um, Noah's talking about this, and I, it, there's been a, a, a fair few. And <clears throat> do you see um, Gag Reflex as being an internet novel? It, I mean, is it about the internet and about the experience of being online? I have my own thoughts about this, but I'd like to hear yours. I don't know because I don't, because I never, I actually never heard like the phrase internet novel until like a couple of weeks ago um, where like I saw there's like this phrase where reviewers were saying like, you know, X novel gets the internet right or whatever. Mm, yeah. um, so I was like, oh, no that's something that people are thinking <laughs> about. Like, I don't know. Even like one of my favorite books that is, online base is called Amygdala Tropolis by by B.R. Yeager and like mm-hmm. I would never in my mind that I actually conceptualize it or like think this is an internet novel or something even though it encapsulates very well board culture um mm. so I don't know I don't know if I would call it that because I wasn't really necessarily thinking about that per se although I was wanting to explore like my relate like my relationship with like kind of like how I've developed with the internet I think you know so I don't know how you would define that because it's very it's a very specific subset right like live journal mm. um and like pro Anna or even just like pro not ignorant about anorexia kind of communities that do exist um and not everyone has that online experience either so it's not mm. really all encompassing of that you know yeah, I, I I don't think it is an internet novel. Like I, I think people are gonna say it is, but I I mean it's been called an epistolary novel, and I think it is mm-hmm. it is that. Um, mm-hmm. And but you could have easily, if you set it in nineteen ninety five with no internet, uh, you could pretty much write the same novel. It would just be mm-hmm. in, a, in a, a written journal as opposed to a live journal. You wouldn't have to do a massive amount uh, to set it 10 years or 20 years in the past. Mm-hmm. There might not be a, a pro-Anna uh, thing around. That's kind of the only um, the only innovation that's come from the internet. You wouldn't have the, the sections where people are talking uh, through instant messenger. Mm-hmm. Although I guess that probably did exist in 1995. I think but, it's uh, when did When did AIM come online? Oh, probably years ago, and there's probably like proto aims that are like, like internet relay like chat. Did you ever have like internet relay chat? I didn't. No, I I, I um, had very slow internet over the phone, so I never could do anything fun in like the early days of the internet. Like people mm. talking about like message board culture and BBSs and IRC stuff, I could never do any of it. I could, everything would take like twenty minutes to download a picture. Hmm. So and, it looks uh, like AIM started in 1997, just yeah. for anyone who cares. Um, yeah, and IRC has been around a, a lot, lot earlier, and th- there's been, like, like I say, you, c- you could have a lot of this stuff from a lot earlier. I, I, don't, I don't think the, the book is ultimately about what it's like to be on the internet. It's mm. about what it's like to be, A, a, a teenage girl, and mm. B, a human being, mm. and like a lot more, yeah, a lot deeper ways. And yeah, yeah. 
Because it's really like, I guess like, you know, um, you were talking about like, when did I conceptualize of this novel? I do have to say like, even at the very beginnings of me wanting to publish like 2013, 2014, I did always want to write like an eating disorder novel. Like it always tried to conceptualize something and it never really came together. And it is true that like this novel, like I just wanted to try to express kind of what it is like to be in that mindset and like experiencing that, you know, Mm, like the food lists um, and the tediousness of it. And like the, the tedious part of like the obsession, um, you know, it's like, is it tedious reading about all the lists of things she eats? Well, congratulations, because it's fucking tedious to live it. <laughs> you know, I kind of um, wanted to just like express that in a way, too. So I can see what you're saying that mm. the Internet isn't the whole part. It shouldn't like eclipse the experience. Yeah, it, it, it's it's the medium. It's not the you know, it, it's the plate you're serving the food on. It's not the meal itself. Mm-hmm. Um. So, I think let's um, let's break for some music now, because music is a big part of, of the book. Because pretty much all of the live journal posts are accompanied by a little like, "I'm now listening to um, Puddle of Mud" or um, "Pod" or um, uh, what's that other one? Head PE. Yeah, just just oh, yeah. classic classic bands. But by the way, uh, I. This this book made me think about um, something I haven't thought about for probably about 20, 25 years now. Uh, do you ever remember a band called The Deadlights? No. The Deadlights. They are e- easily the most obscure new metal band I've uh, I I know of. They um they released the four song EP. They went on the second stage of Ozfest for like one show. And completely dis- disappeared, but like as new metal goes, they're actually really good mm. for those four songs. Um, like like they're much better than a, a hell of a lot of bands who did a lot better. They're kind of on the same level as like maybe Linkin Park or some of the like better mm-hmm. ones. Mm. But, but like, who were your guys new metal wise? Like, who who do you who are you into? Oh my gosh. Um, I guess like the big like seminal bands for me were like Corn, mm-hmm. Slipknot, um, Mudvayne. I did listen to Head PE. I'm trying to I think. I never liked them. You didn't like them? No, I never got into them. Um, Mudvayne I liked. Like I, I, I liked Mudvayne. Hmm. Like, their first their first record was pretty pretty decent. Yeah. And then, oh my god, Otep. I don't know if Otep qualifies as like uh, new metal. Rap metal, yeah. It, it, it was in that, like, like new metal is this like weird genre that doesn't really have any real rules. You just you're just kind of around at the same time. Like, Deftones get called the new metal band today. They're really? just they're, they're, uh, they're good, but I would not know if I'd call them new metal. That's interesting. And then Blindside was a really good one. Um, I don't know. That's, I think those were like the big, big ones for me. And then there were a lot of peripherals that like I knew of and listened to, but I'm like really bad with band names. So they would be the ones that come up and be like, oh, I know this song, but I just don't Mm -hmm. remember the name of the song or like the name of the band. Like I did actually listen to Tool for like 10 years before I 
was like, oh, this is Tool. Like <laughs> when someone formally introduced them to me, and I was like, oh, I've been listening to them for a long time. I just didn't know. <laughs> it's just like that one bass riff. Yeah. Oh, and Dead Z is like one of my favorites, but I don't know if they're actually new metal. Would they be new metal? I think they're, they're new metal adjacent, I guess. Yeah. Like I say, like like. Um, Marilyn Manson or White Zombie are all like new metal adjacent. They'd be on the like the yeah. same Ozfest and Family Values tour and stuff. And yeah. Ramstein would be in there as well. And they're, they're industrial metal. And there's all this, there's all this stuff that was kind of around at the time and before it and after it that kind of it all kind of is mixed in together. It, it's like new metal is kind of shorthand for stuff white kids were listening to from about. 1997 to 2004-ish. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm surprised she's, um, your characters yeah. listened to some of this stuff because, um, like, 2005, this this music was on its way out big time. Mm-hmm. Like, in 2005, I was listening to, like, Strokes and Interpol and <laughs> shitty, was, shitty bands like that. I was never, just, like, when I was a teenager, I was never quick on like trends and stuff like my best friend had two older brothers and um like when we were 13 they were like I don't know like 16 and 19 I think and they would like introduce us to LAPD which was like corn before corn Mm. um and like Nine Inch Nails and um like ICP which ICP (laughs) was a big influence for me but definitely not new metal um and so like a lot of the music I listened to really revolved around that. And then my social group revolved around that because before like Spotify and before the ubiquitousness of like this music availability, people, you know, I think this was the same everywhere. People in high school really did organize themselves based on these, like it's, it was fashion and music and collective values, like as these social cliques. And like, that was my social clique. It was, it was new metal, but um, it was also, to a degree like rave music which just wasn't as popular in the states so that was like my weekend thing my weekend mm-hmm. thing was like listening to house music and doing molly whereas like during the week when i was at high school it was like smoking weed and like listening to alice in chains and <laughs> and stuff see if you if you've grown up in the uk that that those two things would never mix like the, the the kids who listen to house music like beat up the kids who listen to new metal mm-hmm. right, which i can personally attest to like like house music and rave and stuff was like the kind of jock kids music oh see that's interesting it was never like that in the states that was like a it was still very underground here where it was like the weird kids were doing it and now now it is a lot more mainstream because it's like club culture but mm-hmm. like the jocks were listening to like, I guess like rap and pop. I don't know what they were doing. Um, but I did have like metal kids that were my that were in my social group that would be like, you know, electronic music is soulless. But then like a year later, I remember that guy was like, oh, I apologize because Prodigy is pretty sick. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah, Pro- yeah. I was definitely that um, like. It's just bleeps and bloops. It doesn't take any talent to make a music like the Chemical Brothers or something. Mm-hmm. But you'd always give the Prodigy a, a pass on that because they were they were punk and yeah. you know, Keith looks crazy, right? Yeah, and 
the weird thing about like rave music is when it started out in the UK, it was like deep underground, really political. Um, it was the, the weirdest subculture. It was um, there was all these influences from like cyberpunk um, books and uh, culture, and the, the occult was a big thing in it. Um, there was it was just a, a really strange like melting pot culture. Then about. 10 years later it was it's just utterly mainstream it's like well just like the most average people would go on the weekend to just like drink 20 lagers and shout and fall over mm-hmm. um yeah it, it i and i guess it's it's probably gone back to being um underground now i i don't i don't know if the same values are still there but um there were, I know there were a lot of like underground raves during COVID when people couldn't get together. Mm-hmm. Some of them were, um, some of them were like you know, real rave culture from back in the day. Some of them were just like, you know, just juggle a lager, do a bunch of blow, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. Did um? Do you know if like here there were ever things like um like map points where like you didn't you never learn the actual address of the rave you had to go to like certain points like a scavenger hunt mm. until you found yeah. it because they were illegal like that was like something that happened a lot um, when I was growing up was it was like it's this place is being thrown in like an underground atrium which nobody knows is happening so don't fucking tell anyone the address you cop you know. <laughs> Yeah, that that's that's how like the original raves were were happening. Like yeah. way way back in the early nineties, where you'd have like Acid House and rave, techno and Gabba and stuff. Oh, Gabba, so good. <laughs> <laughs> so good. I, know, I, lo- I love Gabba. It, it feels like ADHD brain that something yeah. could go that fast. It's really but, big in Russia right now, by the way. <laughs> at Germany, yeah, it's big with Nazis apparently. But um, <laughs> okay. yeah, Nazi Gabba is a is a whole subgenre. Wow. They'll be like music going at incredible speeds but then you'd be like oh wait that's hitler they're sampling hitler in this wow but um yeah like i I know some people still go to like real underground raves and they do that whole map thing because it is still illegal in this country i I don't think it's as enforced as it was in the early 90s when there was a big uh, panic over it and people like i guess like one person died of ecstasy so i remember stuff in school like you know, you take a single pill that can kill you and so yeah. on, and, you know. Mm-hmm. And half of the people in like listening to that would have been like coming down off whatever they were doing on the weekend anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, that that still goes on. You you can you, you probably find some around Glasgow somewhere. I've, a, seen, I've get, actually had on my Instagram um, some targeted ads for like, yeah, like rave nights or something like that and i'm just like oh this is so curious i really want to go but also i'm like old now (laughs) i just don't know if i have it in me yet like maybe i'd go if i went with a friend Um, i think like most of the people would be like our age there like at a real rave yeah like like at some fake rave that some kids are putting on probably probably you yeah you probably stand out like a sore thumb but it's like rave culture was like around when when our generation was kids and I think yeah. the people are still doing it are going to be like in their kind of mid to late thirties. Yeah. Thirties most. You know, it's funny because I do remember like being 16, 17 and going to these raves and like having the older, like the older club kids, you know, 
um, that were there where it's like they're not wearing like the jinkos. They're just wearing like, you know, sensible denim and like, you know, a sexy top and like the hat or something. And I was like, oh, like that's all that's a type. It's always a type of raver who is that like a little bit older, not in school, like has a job, <laughs> like probably has kids or something. And you'd be like, oh, they've probably been going to rave since the 90s. Like they just know how it is. And now I'm like, oh, my God, am I that person now? Like, <laughs> if I go, am I the person wearing denim and the sensible top? <laughs> yeah, you could be a rave mom. You could like when one of the kids like uh, like takes too many a pill too many and is getting a bit freaked out. You could like help them out. You could put them in the chill out zone. Make sure they've got lots of like uh, orange squash to drink. I know. Oh, be a rave mum. It's a it's a noble cause to be a rave mum. Yeah. Okay. Don't, it's don't be ashamed. <laughs> That's funny. But um, so do you want to um, <clears throat> do you want to pick like just any any music from the book? Uh, just literally anything, but probably not too um, like probably not corn because they'll sue us. But like, um, yeah, just just what, like what's good? What's what's the, like the the theme tune? Let's see. What about? Oh my god, here is actually a good one. That's like it would be like a sleeper hit. How about Invisible by Sugar Ray? <laughs> oh, boy. We, we've had some messed up music on this show before, but um, yeah, wow. Sugar Ray. Who doesn't miss Mark McGrath? <laughs> Who I keep calling Mark McGuire for some reason, but that's a baseball guy, right? I think it is. Um, I don't know. I'm not an American anymore. You can't expect me to know anything about that. No. You've got to know about like Rangers and Celtic now. Yeah, that's um, what I've got to learn about. And you got to pick a side and like stab the people who are on the other side. Um, okay. Yeah, I've actually been told too that they're like, they're like, don't talk about football if you don't mm, know it. Like, <laughs> I don't get yeah, it, it, it's it's easy to get uh, messed up on football, especially in Glasgow. Yeah. Um, okay, but uh, here is "Invisible" by. You heard it right, Sugar Ray. <laughs> Oh, oh, oh. 
didn't mishear that. That was indeed Sugar Ray. Um, like, like we've, we've played bands who were like um, Japanese anarchists who um, hijacked planes and flew them to North Korea on this show before. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, that was Sugar Ray. Um, like, like statistically speaking, with the amount of death metal and black metal we've had on the show, at least one or two bands are probably Nazis. Um, just because that's how the genre is, but but now we have played Sugar Ray on the show. We've crossed that threshold. You're welcome. We we can play um, "Steal My Sunshine" by. Uh, Who is that? that, that oh yeah, we can play "Steal Yeah Steal My Sunshine" next. So- I can't remember who that was, but uh, I remember that song. Uh, the, the memories of the early two thousands and late nineties. Just all come flooding back. I know you kind of forget it, don't you? Yeah, there was like a lot of crap. <laughs> <laughs> so much garbage. So many terrible songs. Like they were do, so do you, catchy. Yeah. Do, do you remember um uh that's uh fuck you, you bitch, fuck you right back, that song? No, I don't remember that. It was actually two songs. So it, there was it was like a novelty thing where um, I'm going to look it up now. So, so it's called F-U-R-B, Fuck You Right Back. Mm. Um, it was by the, it's a debut, probably only song, by the American R&B singer-songwriter Frankie. It was released in oh, 2004. No. Okay. I think I had heard this, but this is a long, long time ago. It may not have made it this as far is- into the States. Uh, it, was, it was American. Was it? Oh, she was American. Oh. Um, yeah. Um, so the song was like uh, a, like this song to oh. her boyfriend. Yeah, fuck it. I don't want you back. I remember that song. Okay. Yeah. And, um, it, uh, and then her boyfriend released in big square, square quotes, the, like a reply to her, like, no, fuck you. You write back. Wow. And, um, yeah, it's uh, so, and that was like the gimmick, and uh, that's like there was a girl who said "fuck you" to this guy, but now he's saying it to her too. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's it just a, a brilliant, brilliant time to be uh, young and um, alive, just in two thousand four. Is there anything more early arts than like the diss track? Yeah, they're um. Yep. I don't think anyone does them anymore. Kanye recently did one. Did he? I, I, I've yeah. kind of not been following him for mental health reasons. Yeah. Uh, his, not yeah. mine. But yeah, um, yeah I, I, I feel I, I would get sucked into a, a Kanye spiral if I <laughs> tried to understand what's going on with him right now. Mm-hmm. He's a difficult guy. But speaking of mental spirals and uh, depression and despair... Um, your book, though. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I know this is probably like bringing up like 
tearing the scabs off your old wounds and stuff. But so you were in this like pro Anna community and live journal in at that time when I guess it, the idea was kind of coming to prominence. I like, I remember hearing about it around that time mm. and thinking like, wow, that's because I always knew what anorexia was, but the idea that you would be like pro it, it, it would be the same as being say pro depression or pro schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. But um, or at least I, that's how I understood it at the time. But from what it sounds like, it, it, it was a lot different to what people believed it to be. Mm-hmm. So uh, can, can you speak to that? Like, is it really people encouraging each other to fast until they're practically dead? Or is there more, more to it? Well, I do think that there is a subset of um, the eating disorder community online that does encourage each other to like reach goal weights um or like fast together or things like that there are groups of people who do do that or they work to like trigger each other to um so that you know they can all communally become sicker um but you have to keep in mind though too that these are groups of people who do have like mental illness and like they are struggling but there is also a very large subset of that community where they are just there to like vent and like find people who feel um, and have experiences that they do because the majority of the world outside of their eating disorder really doesn't understand what they're going through. Um, and the external response to having an eating disorder, like if you tell your parents or if you tell your friends and family is generally to like just eat or, you know, like they don't understand it. They don't understand like what's wrong with you, et cetera. They don't understand like the root of it. And so um, I think that there is a bit of a mischaracterization of it. Like you do have that, but you also have people who believe in like harm reduction, you know, like you have large groups or you had, I don't know if it still exists, probably does yet you had like large groups of like bulimic communities who are saying like look we know that you're probably going to continue making yourself do these things like throw up your food and that kind of thing but maybe you can learn how to do it in a way that's not going to kill you you know like you can learn how to take care of your electrolytes like you can figure out how to deal with this like while you're dealing with this a lot like how for example, heroin users would use harm reduction techniques, like use, having clean needles available um, and that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. so it is, there are portions of it that are like that, but in a large, the large swath of it, especially of what I've seen that sur- has survived, like the stuff that's still online now is definitely like just people who are trying to find other people who think and feel like them. Um, I'm not saying that it's not like dangerous or that it can't, or that it's not triggering. It's absolutely triggering for people who are like in that mindset. Like it's not, I think if you're a sick person and feeling vulnerable, it's definitely not a place that you would probably want to be, but when you don't have anywhere else that you can find community, like it makes sense, right? Hmm. Like having an eating disorder is a very unique mental illness because it is an addiction. Like it, it has obsessive and addictive qualities to it. But it's also unique in the fact that, like, you have to face your addiction in order to survive. This is not something that you can quit cold turkey. It's it's behavioral, but that's just a symptom, you know. So, mm. yeah. yeah I, I think that's something that 
I struggle with understanding for a very long time about it. That um, you know, it's not just a case that you can make a decision to eat a big sandwich and you'll be fine. That it, right. it's as much an addiction as anything else. And um, right, like the the person who is addicted to heroin isn't just doing heroin because they're like, I crave it. There's a root problem at its core, and the root problem is that. Um, they're that they're disconnected like there's something that's going on there is a root symptom i think i heard somewhere that like the opposite of addiction is connection and i think about that a lot in terms of like when i see people who are suffering and struggling um with addictive tendencies or addictive mental health issues you know is that for me when i was that young um I really did feel like really alone. I felt alienated. I didn't feel like anyone understood me. And when I did try to get help, like from my parents, for example, they they were they get angry at me. They didn't know how to help. I, I was shamed and that kind of mm, thing. Same. It wasn't approached in the right way. And so that only served to make me feel even more disconnected. And I wanted autonomy and control over my life. And, and the only way I knew how to do that was to turn inward on myself. Like if I could have autonomy over my body, then, you know, nothing else could hurt me essentially. Cause I was, mm. I was going to be like the one in control. Yeah. So kind of yeah. like when people are uh, being tortured, they will bite their tongue sometimes to the point where they literally bite their tongue off just cause mm. the pain you cause yourself is, qualitatively better than pain that's been caused to you mm -hmm. mm. yeah I, like i said it, it took me a while to, to understand that about not just eating disorders but a, a lot of stuff and how you know a lot of the behaviors that seem um completely maladaptive to people like taking heroin like we've, we all know what happens when you take heroin it's not gonna end in a good place for anyone so why do people do it but it's obviously not a, you know, it, it, it's not a purely hedonic thing in the same way that going skydiving is, or, you know, going out to the bar with your friends is a good, is a good time that you want to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, um, and the, you know, a lot of people still don't seem to understand that and the treatments around these things and the way society reacts to the anorexia, addiction lots of different mental illnesses is still based in that idea of well don't you want to be happy why don't you just do the thing that makes you happy mm -hmm. it's um and in, in the book so lucy herself because we only see from her perspective her live journal like i i think there was very little um discussion of like her parents uh, i i don't know if she has a, any siblings um, we know a little about how she's at school. She's like a good student at school. But, um, yeah, there was <coughs> one of the many things I liked about it was that there wasn't much of a, like, psychologize in her, you know, trying to reveal later on that she'd been, you know, the usual sexually assaulted or things like that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, plenty of bad things do happen to her, but there's no, like, this is the one thing that made me how I am because mm -hmm. you know, there never is. Yeah. Um, but so how with Lucy specifically in the book, how, how do you see her 
like how did you see her uh, disease her disorder develop like how like where is it coming from for her hmm. that's a good or is question. it coming from nowhere that's a good question like if there's a root cause for her hmm. is there could could there be or is that is that just a complete wrong question to ask well i mean it kind of depends right like there's never any one particular issue. People are very nuanced and complex in that way. Um, and like, maybe it isn't the right, necess- like maybe it isn't the right question to ask because like, maybe it doesn't matter. You know, I think the truth of it is just that like, we have a person like who is suffering and trying to explore the nature of that, you know? Mm. But yeah, it's a good question. I don't think I thought of the root of it as I was writing it, like characterizing her by saying like, oh, this has happened in her childhood. So this is why she yeah. is the way she is. Or, yeah. yeah. No, I, I think that's the right way to go. Yeah. I think that's the honest way to do it and much more satisfying. Um, mm. I mean, there's probably a lot of readers who want to, who see someone suffering the way she does and want to have some like tidy answer and wrapped up in a little bow for them. Yeah. Um, and that's probably what lesser writers would have would have done. You know, it, like like that whole bit. You ever read Fifty Shades of Grey? You ever subjected yourself to that? <laughs> no, I've never read it. No. <laughs> so, so I think in book, I think in the first book, it's revealed that the reason that Christian Grey is a massacre, a sadist, is because his um, mother was murdered, and her, his mother looks exactly like. The, the, the girl in Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh. So he, he likes to punish uh, brunette women mm. for being, um, for looking like his mum, for being murdered. Mm-hmm. Seems a little victim blamey to me, but you know, who am I to judge? Mm-hmm. I'm going to kink shame him. It's like Ted Bundy. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah like the true crime obsession we find in the root cause of a uh, serial killer's. Like why they fu- why they fucked up? Yeah. Uh, sometimes it's kind of obvious, but sometimes it's just not. Sometimes and... people are just fucked up. Sometimes people just get off on like being able to like make another person experience pain, but they're completely yeah. well adjusted <laughs> everywhere else. That's a that's a kink. Like that can be a thing. Oh yeah, I mean, like I'd argue that's like the whole of modern conservatism is just that. It's just. You, you like get off you get off on pe- hurting people mm. you can't really like walk down the street punching strangers in the face so you find a way to do it and that's through like voting for people who hurt people <laughs> and living vicariously through them but mm-hmm. that's a whole conversation for another day um but um okay. i was the question i was gonna ask um oh yes so um sort of half to midway through the book um buddhism comes up a lot uh, which is kind of resonant for me because, like, at the time I was, uh, I mean, I was like, you know, depressed teen listening to new metal. Uh, and one of the things I really got into was Buddhism. I think it was through reading Jack Kerouac. That's like mm-hmm. the most corny and cliched teenage boy thing to do. Mm-hmm. But um, so that like popped out at me a bit. Uh, where did where did that come from? Is it like something you're interested in? Is it uh, was it just right for the character or or what? Um, yeah, I've actually like, I guess I had during my teen years and in college, I'd had kind of this passing and rising interest in Buddhism um, for a while, like, 
I do remember like in high school, one of my teachers being like, oh yeah, people who get interested in Buddhism at this age, it definitely just generally doesn't stick. Um, I always like thought about that for some reason, which is interesting because now like I do meditate like at least several times a week (coughs) and have like, I guess you would say explored it a lot, like thought about the nature of suffering a lot. It's something that didn't come up for me like more intensely until um, last few years, like 2017 maybe is when I started like really heavily incorporating um, it into my life in a serious way. But prior to that, you know, I, yeah, I guess I, I don't remember the first place I really was like discovering it. We all probably do discover it through some like whitewashed Western bastardized kind of lens. And then I read a lot of philosophy in college about non-duality and um, like just read a lot of literature on it um, and tried to meditate and explore my spirituality then. Um, And then kind of like veered off in a completely um, like almost completely different direction. Cause I think during my twenties for about four years, I was a Shia Muslim like pretty heavily practicing but then I like kind of fell yeah I kind of fell away from that too um I mean it was great I actually have great reverence for the religion I just am not at my heart a monotheist and so I was like I can't in good faith like actually stay in this religion because I feel like I'm fucking heretic you know like after a while after studying and learning more um I feel like I did have pretty intense religious experiences though through um through that like I, I went to the mosque like like one to two times a week and was had a lot of community around me and um stuff like that everyone like is getting into catholicism now because of like the (laughs) the deepness of the uh and the richness of the symbolism and the 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 rich connections you can get but uh, no islam is where you get the real the real stuff that's the that's the real monotheism (laughs) yeah or um like the orthodox church like if i was a monotheist i might i would probably go to the the russian orthodox church because like there are the way they practice is so insanely beautiful it's like hypnotic um but yeah i know catholicism is like really trendy right now (laughs) it's almost eye rolly but it's okay people believe like every path every path is the path so like it's just whatever it works um but yeah like it really cemented the importance of ritual like in my life in a healthy way and um yeah since then i think i just more buddhism like buddhism and like more like witchcraft type stuff really does just fit and feel more natural for me so yeah and you're um uh, editor at uh is it Witch Bottle magazine? Uh, it's a witchcraft magazine. Witchcraft think, magazine. Yeah. Which, that's a different one. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, t- tell tell me a little more about that because I'm always fascinated by people who have some sort of practice like that. Because I, I, I'm, I, I would not be good at it. I, I've tried, I've tried meditating. I've been to Buddhist temples. I've tried various kinds of occultism. Um, it, it never sticks to me. I, I don't have the, um, yeah, like. A lot of people have that like ritual space uh, shaped hole in their heart and i just Mm -hmm. don't like Mm -hmm. i I, i'd be totally fine just like get up going to work coming home forever like 
I, I don't have like a spiritual side to me and that, and that I don't judge people who do. I'm not one of those like new atheist type, type people. Yeah. Like, but, um, but like what, <clears throat> like what, what does witchcraft mean to you and what, how do you like use it in your life? So for me, it is really about trying to be clear about my intentions and what I am wanting to gain or create in my life. Um, so for example, moving home to live with my parents, you know, uh, especially with my dad, who is um, not the greatest person to live with and really doesn't have like good boundaries and it's just not like pleasant generally to be around. I really had to experience that. Yeah. Like I really had to figure out like how the fuck to make good boundaries and like get over um, my fear of doing that. Like I was so like, like here's a pretty like raw example. Right. So I was so afraid of standing up to him for stuff that, um, like I just didn't like him doing just like stupid shit he was saying or if he was doing something that was rude to my daughter like if she cried he would like mock her and I was like that's like I'm like that's not okay like it's it was easier for me to defend her but not when it came to stuff about me you know Mm. so um I just went through a lot of processes of um, very intense like self-hypnosis and visualization to work through what it was that was explicitly like making me feel so triggered um why that was so damaging like what it was that I had needed at the time you know really like revisiting some of the most painful memories of like my early early childhood stuff that like you know you just don't think about anymore until you're like sitting in like a chair for an hour in you know, is meditative space, like thinking like, you know, what happened when I was four? Like, why is it the way that my daughter cries, like affects me in this deep, like traumatic way and thinking like, oh, that's because like, I remember a time when I cried like that. What did I need in that moment? And so a lot of that process um, through like ritual and intention setting and stuff, like kind of what I was able to walk my way through it. And I was able to actually set good boundaries and like stand up to my father in a way that I was no longer, I was afraid of it, but then I became less afraid and then it stopped becoming a problem. And then I developed the better boundaries where like he would just leave me the fuck alone and my mental health Mm. became better because I had these stronger boundaries. Like I could let go of like whatever was going on, fear of abandonment or um, fear of death or whatever it is that happens, you know, when you're dealing with, like childhood trauma stuff. It's not even like I would always say, well, it's not even like mine was particularly bad or whatever. But, you know, when you're a five-year-old, like, and your parents aren't great, you definitely like, that's, it's a pretty traumatic feeling to be like, yeah, if my parents don't like me, that means I get abandoned because that's the instinct, you know? And that was still, I think, rooted in me as an adult. So I had to like kind of go in um, through these intense visualizations, um, and rituals to get me into this kind of mental state where I could like walk through it, give myself kind of like what I needed um, and kind of come out on the other side, like trusting that I had like these tools in this process to get it done. So it was very practical, like in a way, it helped give me a sense of 
control. It helped like restore a sense of um, confidence, you know, so those kinds of things. Yeah. I, I People have an idea that like witchcraft is, you know, dancing naked in the woods with a goat. Um, and totally valid. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what 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 do you want to like does that is that what it takes to get you into a trance state? Like then why yeah. not? <laughs> yeah. But like like you said, it it can often be totally practical and just like goal orientated. You you could probably like rewrite what you just said in like this total like management speak uh, kind of way about goal orientated uh hustle mm-hmm. kind of thing, you know? Um I, maybe that'll be the next thing that like uh, tech bros get into. It's like they'll start doing witchcraft, and like Jack Dorsey will be caught in the woods naked with a goat. <laughs> we can only hope. Um, yeah, I've, I've got to go down and meet my parents in a, a couple of weeks, and like I know the second I walk through the door, the countdown starts until they call me fat, mm. and uh, yeah, so I, I either need to like love witchcraft in the next couple of weeks or yeah. just like carry a bottle of mace with me and the minute they say like oh you gotta eat a scone maybe you don't want to eat maybe you shouldn't eat that scone i'll just like give them i'll just mace them right in the eyes um, things like a good answer and it will definitely solve the issue it will yeah that that's what my therapist has told me yeah um it's just mace mace your parents yeah that's a good idea uh, but so we're coming up on the end now. So mm-hmm. I know this book is like fresh out. Like mm-hmm. I don't even believe it's out in the, in the shops yet. But um, what are you working on right now? And where um, are you working on a new novel? Are you, are you doing more teaching? Is, like what, what's next for you? So right now I am doing um the final edits on the novel that comes out in 2023 in the u.s oh wow yeah so um, i'm just like focusing on that and then i don't know i don't know what i'm doing i'm working a full-time normie job right now um which i like doing i really like my job and it's also nice to have stability um after just like the last couple of years, like it just feels, it just feels like normal. And I think that's just like my, my brain just needs to like decompress, you know? Um, so, so, that's what so sorry, go on. <laughs> what's that? Uh, so what's the, the new novel? Um, it's called deliver me and it takes place in rural Missouri. Um, and um, yeah, I don't want to reveal too much about it, but it's definitely, I'm excited about it. I hope people like it, so. Cool. No, I, I'm sure I will. <clears throat> you know, i going to write a, like, the great Glasgow novel. Like, have some, like, guy drinking butt fast, uh, stabbing a paramedic, uh, fighting a Rangers fan. You know, stuff yeah. Like, relatable stuff like that. Might do that. Slamming Iron Brew. Arguing over what flavor it really is. Iron Brew's Iron Brew flavor. It's bubblegum. Um, okay. <laughs> it's a fucking bubblegum flavor <laughs> but um yeah that i'll keep an eye out for that new one and um yeah folks at home gag reflex is brilliant thank you like um yeah definitely go out to, uh so when's it coming out in the us and uk 
So it was already out in the US and I think it comes out in the UK like very soon. I've seen some UK people with copies already, so it might be like mm-hmm. on its way. So we shall see. Um but yeah, it, pretty, it can be pre-ordered, I assume. Yeah. Um yeah, I'm pretty excited. I honestly like you know what's crazy is I was looking at Goodreads. <laughs> oh no, reading my Goodreads reviews. <laughs> yeah, don't the do other that. Day for Gat Reflex and actually like there were a lot of like really good reviews on it that I literally like started bawling like out of nowhere. <laughs> I don't know why I don't know if I can explain it per se but I texted my publisher and I was like I don't know I just feel like I think it just was like surprising because I just wanted this to be like a thing like I was like I didn't expect anything from it and just to see people like respond so well to it made me feel like I was just like, wow, that like little like sad pain in pain dumbass from high school. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you know what I mean? Like, I was just like, I feel like it made it seem like okay, like right, that people hmm. people are getting something from that experience. I don't know. It was nice. I mean, I was um, talking to a a lady on a, a dating app recently, and I mentioned that I was reading your book, and that like yeah things went from zero to 60 at that point like dropping your name uh like people uh people who are your fans are like really your fans that's so wild to me it doesn't make any (laughs) sense like i'm always like what what do you mean you like my book honestly (laughs) it's a little bit unbelievable i don't know it's i just feel so like honored that people even want to like read it so well i mean it at the end of the day it's good like it's good literature it's good fiction thank you like like sometimes cult authors just suck uh you don't so yeah, feel, feel good about that as well i'm sure some people think that but i'm okay with that too <laughs> I, I've, got, I've got to meet actually I, I did um shortly after animals eat each other came out i walked past a charity shop and i saw animals eat each other in the window oh wow i, I got really mad on your behalf <laughs> I was angry about that because I mean, even if you don't like the book, it just, just come out. You don't put, you don't give your book to a charity shop to sell no. like a, a week it comes out. Well, That's maybe someone got wrong. to read it for two bucks. That's, I mean, two pounds. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. Uh, yeah, I, I hope that I hope it found a good home. Me too. But um, yeah, folks at home, uh, read Gag Reflex. It's brilliant. But to to. Uh, play out the show Let, let's have a bit more uh just g- g- give me like you, you got a top sugar ray now you got to give me like the the stupidest music you could possibly think of oh, give me give me just like the worst the worst the worst or the best it's the same thing it's new metal let's see Hang on. Oh, I don't know. What could top that? You could do Jump the Fuck Up by Soulfly. Is that new metal? It's close. It's good enough. It's and good enough. Yeah, I mean, it's new. It's the greater new metal cinematic universe. It's it's all connected. 
but yeah, and, and I quite like Soulfly. And plus Sepultura um, connection, so it's already great. Okay. So yeah, Jump the Fuck Up by Soulfly. Here it is. Uh, read Gag Reflex. It's brilliant. And come back next week. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, the Malakoi, the sequel to Morju, which was probably the best fantasy novel written in the last 50 years. Um, absolutely brilliant. Uh, going to be talking about uh, the, the DeLoread. Um, I'll check that out if you haven't already. It's brilliant. Oh, I went to go um, see Missouri Williams speak at Waterstones when that came out, and that book is sick as fuck. It's brilliant. Oh, that's it's brilliant. And it, it took me so, so long to realize, oh, Missouri Williams, like Tennessee Williams. Oh. <laughs> Wait, is her name real or not now? I'm confused. I, I don't know. I, it, it, may be, it may be a pen name, or maybe she just had, like, her parents were tennessee williams fans maybe honestly honestly i was like that is a pretty sick name for someone from the uk i was like surprised i don't know you know what song i should have picked i should have picked um nookie by limp biscuit (laughs) we'd get dmca for that really yeah i know it's it's a shame I, I i can play 19 seconds of it uh if i go to 20 then i i get this whole episode gets taken down <sighs> terrible and I, i'm even like on the fence about sugar ray I'm, I'm i'm gonna gamble on not getting dmca'd by i mean that's probably owned by warner brothers or someone so um i'm doing this for you okay i'm gonna put sugar ray out into the world and risk the entire podcast and possibly my life uh, just to get sugar ray's invisible uh, out into the world where it should be listened to i appreciate your sacrifice yeah, the whole podcast is uh, going to be destroyed. Last episode ever. Uh, just to hear Sugar Ray. But, um, so yeah, final episode. We're going out to uh, Jump the Fuck Up by Soulfly.
can't resist Maybe you don't give a shit for the rest of us But if you do, the time is now, if it ever was If you're gonna fight, what you're gonna do? Jump the fuck up! Get 